Well, how do you tell your story? I don't mean necessarily all of your life. could just be part of it. But how do you tell it? How do you tell about your childhood? How do you tell the story maybe of how you met your spouse or how you got the job that you're in now or even how you came to church this morning? How do you tell that story? Some of us tell the story with a very selective memory. We look at the past and we see the good old days, the glory days, and we weed out all those things that were difficult or hard or, or not uh, wonderful. And we usually tell it in that way because we're making a point about how we feel about the current situation. It was better back then. Sometimes we do the opposite. We tell the story weeding out all the good things. We tell about the, the hard struggle that it's been. The difficult times again and again that we've faced. And normally we tell it that way because we want to uh, stress how much we've accomplished, what we've gotten through. Sometimes we tell it with a little bit of a conspiracy theory. Everything is against me. That's often the times how I talk about my life when I'm late somewhere. I tried to get here on time. I left at the right time, but every single traffic light changed as soon as it saw my car approaching. Yeah, you're nodding. You know what it's like. Well, we come to the end of 2 Samuel, and we hear David recounting his story. It's placed right here, directly in front of what is called his last words. And it is, in some sense, a reflection back on his life. Yes, it mentions the conflict that he's had with Saul, but really it even calls uh, to our attention all of David's enemies. It looks at the whole of his life. David, looking back, you might start to guess what his comments will be, the type of story he will give. If you've been reading along with Second Samuel, you might expect the story to be a gripe or possibly a lament. I mean, to be honest, ever since chapter 11 in the book of Second Samuel, things have gone downhill steadily. Problems after problems have arisen. David could certainly list off his personal failings, his inability to maintain holiness and his frustrations with sin in his own life. Or at this time, he could point the finger at God and say, God, you have only provided me a difficult journey. You called me when I was a young boy, but I have not felt rest ever since that day. I faced the Philistines. I was chased throughout by Saul, wanting to kill me. And then when I finally became king, all I faced from the first day I became king was rebellion after rebellion. Ishbosheth started, then Absalom, my son, then Shimei. David, this is not the life that I should have had. But when we look at this passage, we don't get a lament, we don't get a complaint. We get a 51-verse praise song. 
In fact, to be more specific, it is a thanksgiving song. It's a song of gratitude. And to be clear, this is not David putting on the rose-colored glasses. It's not that naive optimism that I feel sometimes Christians are under the impression that they must always project to people. That everything is okay and that I'm always cheerful and happy. Well, David knew how to lament. He knew how to be frustrated. He knew how to cry out to God. But here, as he's looking back, he shows joy even through his recollection of genuine struggle. How does he look back and come away with gratitude? I think these are crucial questions for us who struggle with thankfulness, who find it easier to look back and see the things that have gone wrong, look back and complain that it could have been better, it should have been this way or that. Let's examine David's prayer and see what he's doing here and see in which ways it might help us understand our own story. Let's do so in front of God and with his guidance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word might dwell in our hearts richly and through it we might understand even our own selves better. Um, Bless us now as we draw close to this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, David's uh, memoir, as it were, is not a straight retelling of his life. It is a prayer to the Lord. It is, in fact, even more powerful than a prayer. It is a song. You know, this passage is almost verse by verse repeated in Psalm 18, which is directed to the choir master. So it was sung and to be sung by God's people in worship. And it makes me think, why is it that Christians sing so often? It stood out to me the first time I started hanging around Christians. My freshman year of college, I I sheepishly go into this large group of strangers, and then before I know it, they break out a guitar and turn off the lights, and they're starting to sing. I thought, what in the world's going on here? And then week after week, I kept noticing every time they got together, they were singing. I never went to any other club that sang. I didn't sing on my own except when the radio was on, and I was pretty sure nobody else could hear me. What I came to realize is what they were doing, especially in those settings, was praying. St. Augustine said, He who sings prays twice. Meaning, not only do you pray with your mind, but you join that prayer with your heart and your emotions. Singing is like prayer on steroids. And David here engages his whole being as he addresses God. Now, I know Presbyterians sometimes get a bad rap that we're too frozen to engage our hearts with things. We are more comfortable staying in the intellect rather than in the emotions. Give me a lecture and keep the feelings out of it, okay? But lectures don't always tell the whole story. Sometimes if you just get the basic facts, they are not accurate enough. A truer picture needs to be told with vivid imagery that you can feel that moves you. My 
two-year-old is starting to uh, haul motorcycles, bikesaurs. I'm sorry, but that is a much better word than motorcycle. A bikesaur, a bicycle, and a dinosaur to smash together. It tells me not only what it is, but how he feels when he sees it. It's it's combined with something that's loud and powerful and the stuff that little boys' dreams are made of. It's true that when we engage our emotions, we get powerful images and that we shouldn't let our emotions always lead. That's not wise to do. I mean, my heart wants to lead me in all sorts of destructive ways. But David isn't afraid to let his heart loose. He's not afraid to, to let his heart go with his, with his uh, faith. But it's not letting his heart roam free and wild. His heart has been tamed by God's word, like a, like a powerful racehorse that it left on its own might, might wind up with destruction. It's not wild, it's harnessed. And when harnessed, run with purpose and power. David's heart is tamed. And it's tamed by God's story. You see, in many ways, David's song here at the end of 2 Samuel is a response to a song at the beginning of 1 Samuel. That book began with the song of Hannah. In her despair, looking at the corruption around her, she receives a promise that she will, she will have a son. And from that, pours forth this song of promise and hope of what God would do. And now, proving that the books of Samuel are one book, really, David ends this with a song of response, a song of fulfillment. Now, David uses some of these same themes to look back on his life and call it a fulfillment, but but how? How could his life be a fulfillment of what Hannah was praying? Well, what he has done here is insert the details of his life into God's greater story. He fits his life into the bigger plan of what God has done. And he engages his whole heart into this framework. David does so by employing meditation. Do you meditate? Do you meditate on God's word? I feel meditation in general is a lost discipline, especially in the West. We are in such an information-driven culture. We're almost addicted to to knowledge and consuming it, consuming facts so frequently, but we starve ourselves for meaning. We fool ourselves reading headlines to think that we understand the news. But we never slow down enough to actually read the article, let alone process its significance and its meaning. We ruminate on images of God. Are we too quick to move on to the next fact? David reviews his life here. He slows down. He meditates with his mind and his heart on these images, and he stays there. Think about this. Everything that is told 
from verse, from verse 2 to verse 51 is all stated in verse 1. All the facts are there. He could have just stopped. But to get to gratitude, to get to thankfulness, he must meditate. He must take these images and weave them and get them ingrained in his heart. Let's look at some of these images, these four things that he meditates on. Right at the start, he meditates on God. And it's no mistake that he starts there. How he understands God is key to how he understands all of his life. Verses 2 and 3 pile up nine metaphors about God and his attributes. God is not some impersonal force out there governing the world or creating and then being an absentee landlord. God is his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his rock of refuge, his shield, his horn of salvation, his stronghold, his refuge, his savior. Yes, these are repetitive but that's what meditation does. It takes these concepts and runs them over and over again in his mind to, to work through the truth of it, exploring all the facets of it. To think about how it changes when you start dwelling on the fact that God is your fortress. You begin to understand that this is a God who deeply desires your safety. He wants to protect you. And if that's your image of God, then you start rebuking all those things in your heart that say, I don't trust God. I feel like he is out to get me. Or perhaps he's too big to worry about my concerns and is just content on leading me into harm's way. I have to admit, in studying this this week, that I've fallen into the rut when, when approaching God in prayer. That I frequently, I think, just refer to him as Father. A father is a wonderful metaphor, and it is a privilege and a blessing to call God Father. But in many ways, if I just end there, I'm limiting my understanding of him. When I pray, God, you are my refuge... When I use the the metaphor of fortress, all of a sudden, I know what to do with my anxiety. I have a place to take my fear and the things that trouble me. I finally see one who is ready, willing, and able to rescue me. And notice this language is covenantal. Verses 4 and verse 7 have that covenantal trademark to it, where there's a call out, a cry, and a response. David can address God like he knows him. He uses personal pronouns. He is my rock, my refuge. And that is a privilege not everybody in the world can pray. It is reserved for those who know him, where there is a committed relationship that he started when we were baptized and brought into the covenant community. We refer to him as our God. Well, he meditates on God, and then from there, he can move to the second thing. He moves to his distress. I'll admit, meditating on your problem seems like bad advice. 
There are all sorts of ways in which we meditate on it, and it overwhelms us. It hijacks our brain with anxiety and fears. But see, David isn't just dwelling on that. He is taking the things that are troubling him, his fears, and he's bringing them through the lens of the Bible. He's coloring it with biblical imagery. I think many of us deal with our problems, our distresses, in one of two ways. Some of us catastrophize our situation. We use graphic images. I'm alone in a wasteland of despair. There is no hope. Everything is against me. I don't see a way out. I can't go on like this. But then other, others of us normalize our problems. We rationalize and we say that there's a logical cause for this. And then we engineer a way to prevent ourselves from ever falling into this problem again. What are the solutions I can come up with? That's the responsible, smart thing to do, isn't it? Both of those are unbiblical. David engages his heart with his problems around in such a way that he sounds out of control. He says, the waves of death encompass me. Torrents of destruction assail me. Cords of shield entangle me. And you might say, well, David can say that. He had real enemies. He had people running after him to kill him. But the imagery runs deeper than that. David, in this section, is employing a broad stroke of images. It's images drawn both from the Bible and even from the mythologies in the culture around him, uh, the Canaanite culture. What he's tapping into is this common feeling. It is utterly relatable. It's the image of chaos. I know for me, when I'm going through whatever it's stressful situations or anxiety or things that I fear or things that I feel are attacking me, man, chaos is a great word for it. One writer puts it this way, chaos is the besetting issue of our common experience. Perhaps these days more than guilt, people can identify with chaos. These looming threats that are out of our control. See, when you get that image of chaos, well, then you realize you're too small to handle it on your own. That you need to cry out for someone to rescue you. Last month, we were uh, at the beach in Delaware, and there were particularly strong riptide currents there, to the point where I didn't feel comfortable uh, going much further out, and certainly didn't want my kids going much further out than, than their waist. You could feel the energy of it pulling you out, but then there were signs all over that said, when it pulled you out, do not swim back in. You will just exhaust yourself. Swim a parallel to the shore until you can get rescued. You know, it's getting in touch with that feeling. Much better than saying, okay, here's a problem I can engineer a solution to. That says, I am weak and I need someone bigger than myself. If you know that feeling, you are in the first steps to salvation. You cry out to something beyond yourself. It's not catastrophizing the situation. 
It's looking for hope. So David, in verse 7, cries out. He cries out to one who hears from his temple, not the temple in Jerusalem, but the true temple in heaven. And that's the third thing that he will meditate on, God's work of deliverance. We see this in this extended section from verse 8 to verse 20 that sort of explodes with vivid imagery, almost to the point where it overwhelms us. We pray, and this massive God responds. He hears David's cry, and it's like Godzilla moving. And as he comes across the shores, everything shakes. It's this terrifying image. Smoke coming from his nostrils and fire spilling out from his mouth. It's terrifying, but it's not terrifying to David who's praying because he knows that this God is coming after his enemies. However overwhelming David's feelings of despair have been in verses 5 through 7, he sees now a God who will overwhelm those things that he fears. God riding a cherub. Please don't have in your mind the Renaissance pictures of cherubs that are chubby babies. God's not riding a chubby baby down. These are winged warriors. He's coming to do battle. Two things when we read this account of God's response and an intervention, two things don't seem to fit. The first is that David says that God does things according to his blamelessness. Verses 17 through 25. You read it and you can feel somewhat uncomfortable. Because you know what David has done. His sins have been public. And even if this was a prayer of David early in his life, we all have been reading it here at the end of his days. And it's very clear that he can't claim a sort of moral perfection. He can't claim to say God owes him because of his obedience. Clearly, God has not merited, or David has not merited God's help. That would undo the whole point of the the, uh, prayer here. The whole point is that he's acknowledging he needs help from above. He's not boasting that he's lived a clean life. No, a helpful way to understand this is that the word blameless in verse 24 has less to do with sinlessness and more to do with wholeness and integrity. David knows he's deeply flawed. But he's a deeply flawed person who clings to the promises of God. He is one who has stayed faithful to God's covenant. That's what he's boasting about here. David's always been honest with his sin. He's not claiming some sort of pharisaical pride. But here he expresses his ongoing loyalty to a God that he knows will save him. It's trust. And he sees that this God will bless him. The whole point of this section is to reassert how God is going to deal with his people. And David is saying, basically, because I know I'm in good standing with God because of his covenant, 
then I can know that the things that are assailing me, the problems that are facing me, are not God's judgment. I know for certain that it's not his condemnation on me. Because of what he has promised, because of the standing I have being in this covenant relationship, we need to learn that theology ourselves. We need to have it embedded in our hearts. That when you face calamity in this world, whatever it is, the struggles you're facing, you need to say, that can't be God's judgment because I am blameless. Not on my own, but because of Christ's righteousness. I know this isn't God's judgment because God poured out all of his judgment toward my sin and toward me on the cross. It is dealt with. So whatever I'm facing now, I know it is not condemnation. This leads us to the second thing that just doesn't seem to fit right in David's imagery here. As he explains God's deliverance, we have to look back on the real facts of his life. Where did God act this way for David? I don't remember a battle that David fought where God came swooping down, toasting the Pharisees with a great fire from his mouth. Where was the time when David was drawn out of waters that were consuming him? That happened to Moses. We could see Noah brought through the, the, the flood, but not David. When did God miraculously intervene? Let's think back on First and Second Samuel, the entirety of his life, all his enemies. Saul wasn't killed by the arrows of some cherub that flew down. He fell on his own sword in battle by himself. Absalom wasn't set on fire. By some great big God, he got his hair caught in a tree. That's why he was stuck there, dangling from his own folly. Goliath. There was no earthquake when Goliath uh, was defeated. It was a lucky shot that hit him between the eyes. David looks back on his life. Is he just making these things up? No. He looks back on his life and he doesn't see coincidence. He doesn't see luck. He doesn't just see the mundane instances of life that happen. He looks back and he sees a vision of God every step of the way active in his life. He doesn't chalk it up to his hard work to be where he is. He chalks it up to God his victory. He knows God has been his rock. God has been his fortress. God was his deliverer at every stage. He's the real force behind everything David has done. He even says that in verses we didn't read, verses 32 through 47 depict David in battle, but at every stage it's God who is equipping him, God arming him, God putting him in the right place at the right time. Is God conspicuously absent when we give an account of our own life? Even when we pray to him, do we approach him like, God, I know you've been on vacation because it's the summertime, but let me catch you up on some things you've been neglecting. 
You've got to pay attention to some of these things in my life, God, because they're urgent. Or do we look back and we see the thunder of God moving? Do we see his powerful arm picking us up and rescuing us from the things that were really going to harm us? Of course, we look at David's life and his victories, and it's more than just personal and political. In a very real sense, David's life was different than ours. He has a very clear role in God's story. He was a type of Christ. His part in God's story pointed to God's ultimate story and his plan of redemption. And David knew that he played a role for a particular time. And as he fought enemies, his enemies represented spiritual enemies. The chaos he fought against was the chaos of sin and death that dominated and oppressed all of humanity. That's what they represented. God brought victory in David's life in order to point and illustrate the greater victory that would be accomplished by Christ on the cross. And so we can read this song in terms of bondage and oppression to sin and God's deliverance through it. Verses 8 through 20 can be shown as God bending the heavens and coming down in the incarnation. His battle that God wages here is a battle against sin and death. The thunder he pours forth here is the destruction of sin and death on the cross, the down payment of the full deliverance that will come on the final day. I can say all that and frame this whole chapter that way, and it's true. Yet I'm afraid that our response to me saying that will be to say, okay, well, maybe this chapter only then applies to the religious parts of my life. Yeah, God's pretty good at getting me out of hell when I die. But he really doesn't do anything for my day-to-day problems. That's how we interpret life. We will have a very small view of God. And we'll miss the real point of this passage. The point isn't that this stuff deals with just redemption of sin that doesn't relate to real life. The logic of this is that this is how God acts against sin and the curse. And because it's how God acts against sin and the curse, it relates to every aspect of life. Because David fits his story into God's greater story. You see, David links his story up to the prayer that Hannah uh, prayed. He uses imagery from Moses and, and the rest of the biblical story of deliverance so he can interpret his life within this framework. And we may not be at the same point in the story that David is, but we're in the same story. And God has proven himself as deliverer against the greatest threat. And so we know that he will, be, he will continue as protector and deliverer from all our lesser threats. We need to meditate on this God. A God who loves us to the point of bending heaven and earth to save us. So that we can know a God who loves us enough through the rough waters of this week through the chaos that's spilling around all, all around me, 
that if he did the ultimate thing at the cost of his own son to save me from death, will he not more protect me against the real things that will harm me now? He even redefines those things we think as threats and harm. It's this image that leads David to the fourth and final meditation. It's a meditation on the future. David sees how God has rescued him. He sees how he fits into God's story. And then it so affects him that it takes his imagination and it converts it. Imagination, I mean here, not simply make-believe, but his creativity, his artistry in, in, in understanding who God is and how he relates to life. He takes it and he sees into the future what God will do now in line with who he is and what he's done. He looks at a day when all of God, all of the world, all the nations of the world will stream to praise God. That's what he says in verse 50. It's actually quoted in Romans 15. Paul saying in Romans 15, this has been accomplished in the ministry of the church. See, David can see into the future because he knows this God and see generation after generation forever God blessing his people. How do we get to joy? What's the key to finding gratitude? It's letting these images spill into our mind to transform our imagination to see in line with who God is. It comes by meditating on our life and meditating on the God of Scripture and bringing those things together and mixing them together to know that he is really active and present. We begin this practice. We'll begin to transform our prayers. It'll cause us to sing. It'll cause us to so meditate on it that gratitude just forces its way out of our hearts. You know, there's there's no mistake that 2 Samuel ends this way. Especially for those first reading 2 Samuel. But even for us reading it, it seems like the story ends in despair and hopelessness. All the promise that was there when David became king seemed to be unraveling. And then you move from this and you see that the trajectory of Israel is so downhill it will go into idolatry and exile. But this song stands there as a rebuke. It's a rebuke that says it ever depended on us. It's a rebuke to that narrative we start spinning in our own hearts that that try to extrapolate in worldly terms where we think God is going to move. You know, I'm just sick of people saying that that God is done with Europe. He's done with New England. And he's moving into other parts of the world. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that. We create those narratives on our own. We need our imagination to be in line, and the vision to be in line with who this God of redemption is. To see a day when he's moving powerfully. Know that it is never dependent on us. God is always there as a strong arm to deliver us. Let's pray.